Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey, I'm Ben Rhodes, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. Uh, I recently published a book called The World As It Is about the Obama White House. Uh, and here in this series of Crooked Conversations, we're taking a deeper dive on the backstory to some of the issues that come up in my book. And I'm lucky to be joined by some of the people who were there with me in the Obama White House. So over the course of these four episodes, we're hearing about what it was like to write speeches for President Obama, the U.S. approach to the secret negotiations with Cuba, uh, which I helped to lead, uh, and looking at how the Benghazi non-scandal led in part to Trump given the combination of Republican cynicism, politics, and the right-wing media ecosystem in our country. But today we're covering the Russian intervention in our election in 2016. Uh, And I thought, given all the headlines, it'd be good to go back to the origins uh, of how this all took place, uh, why Russia decided to intervene in our elections, how we responded uh, in the Obama White House, uh, and what it's like to be the subject of a Russian uh, information campaign, which certainly happened to my guest. Uh, And so I'm very, very pleased to be joined by Jen Psaki, uh, one of my closest friends, uh, to go over uh, exactly what happened to us uh, and how in our respective jobs we dealt with the issue of Russia from roughly 2014 through the 2016 election. Okay, I'm here with Jen Psaki who wore many hats in the Obama administration. Uh, at the end, she was the White House Communications Director, previously campaign spokesperson in 2012, and State Department spokesperson, which we're going to talk about, and also somebody who, like me, uh, ended up being in the middle of, let's just say, Russia's information war against the United States. So Jen and I are going to talk a little bit about our own personal experiences with Russian disinformation uh, and then uh, our view of what happened in the 2016 election, obviously something that's a, of great interest to people. And I think that uh, getting the background of what happened to the two of us, Jen in particular, will give some context to, that hopefully sheds light on, on what happened in the election. So, Jen, welcome. Thank to you. Crooked Conversations. It's great to be here. Yeah. Old friend. We Well, speaking of old friend, I thought we'd just start by, you know, a lot of the Listeners may know you from your various uh, incarnations with Obama and uh, obviously your, your role as commentator today. But why don't we just walk through kind of your career track up until the point that we're going to focus on. So if I remember correctly, you joined the Obama campaign basically the exact same time as me in the summer of 2007. I think we were sitting at like a kind of open card table card or table. table with seven yeah. other people where we were like in our 20s but like two of the oldest people there <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly uh, yeah i yeah. started in february of 2007 yeah. i was i'm more of a veteran than you, you are, are. technically by, by, by a few months. months yeah um i started then uh i'd never been to chicago before i bought a huge parka you know i yeah. was like ready to go Sold. yeah and 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 so you are on the campaign as a spokesperson you came in and I seem to remember you having to be responsible for the collapsing global economy, uh, 
What was your first role in the administration? So uh, in the beginning of the administration, one, anyone who knows Robert Gibbs will appreciate the fact that I didn't know what my job was going to be in the White House until about the day before (laughs) we started. And I thought, maybe I won't have a job in the White House. Well, that's okay. You kind of think through it in your head. But I asked him if I could do the economy because the world was exploding. It seemed interesting. That was probably a crazy thing to ask for at the time. But... As a result, I got to know Tim Geithner and yeah. Larry Summers and all these people. And I was the deputy press secretary and I was responsible for the economic portfolio. So yes. I yeah. kind of lived and died by what was happening in the markets and whatever policy plans were being sent to us at 3 a.m. on any given day. So, you know, what I think was interesting about what you did is that you ended up basically working on everything, right? Because you do the economy uh, at a time when that is obviously the preeminent issue. Then in 2012, you're the the traveling spokesperson, right? So you're doing hardcore politics, that Romney election. And then you go to the State Department to take on the world at a time when kind of the world was coming apart in 2013. Why did you want to make that turn to foreign policy? So I remember actually having conversations with you about this because I had just done the campaign. I had left the White House and then I'd come back to do the campaign. And Jeff Zients, who ended up being the NEC director, said to me, well, you still love Barack Obama, right? And I said, (laughs) yeah, of course. And you still like all the people who work for him. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you should go get another job in the administration. And I looked at all the opportunities out there and I thought, you know, I've, I love politics. I always will. Yeah. I got a, some version of a master's degree in the economy, thanks yeah. to all those people. But I didn't know a lot about foreign policy. Yeah. And I thought it would be such an interesting opportunity. And I, I love John Kerry. You knew John Kerry, right? You worked on his campaign. Yes. Yeah. Now, I was a baby when I worked yeah. on his campaign. So you weren't responsible for the campaign. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I won't take all the blame at this point. Um yeah. But I um, knew him and and I went and talked to him about the job. Yeah. And when, it, when I talked to him about the job, I said to him, you know, well, what do you want to do first? And he said, I want to have an oceans conference. Oh, we ended so, up having that. I know we in did. In 2016. I know. Yeah. And then when he offered me the job, he goes, <laughs> come on up here and give me a hug. Well, uh, you know, he's, uh, a, he's a warmer He's actually a guy. warmer guy. I mean, in all seriousness, like John Kerry, my sense when I got to meet him is, you know, he's you think of him as a slightly distant figure. He's actually a really warm, uh, friendly guy. Exactly. I I think it'd be useful to tell people uh, what this role is. I mean, one of the things that that, I tried to communicate in my book is how strange it was that there would be issues, you know, happening around the world at any given time that don't even register in the United States. But what the United States says about them like makes headlines in those countries, can like royal markets, can like start wars. Um, and so that every day the State Department press briefing is kind of where this drama plays out because it's where people come to find out what is the U.S. position on everything from some territorial dispute in Asia to some, you know, conflict in the Middle East to some uh, NATO issue, uh, as we sit here on the, the dawn of Trump going to the NATO summit. How, how, like, what is that job? How would you describe to a layperson, like, what the State Department spokesperson's role is? Well, you know, most people who have any idea what a briefing is only know about the White House briefing yeah. in the United States, as you've sort of referenced. And that can be this entire game where it's back and forth. Every TV reporter wants to have their question asked, so it's on camera. And the State Department job, and really the briefing, which is a central, one of the central parts of it, 
is so different because it's serious policy substantive about the foreign policy issues of the day. And yeah. as you said, sometimes that's the South China Sea. Sometimes it's Middle East peace. Sometimes it's Russia and Ukraine. And it's very different because it's a more effective tool probably than the White House briefing is. And we used it that way throughout the administration. That's one of the reasons it's a shame they're not doing it as much. Yeah, things have changed a bit. Yeah, Yeah. it's changed a bit. But, you know, I remember distinctly, you know, I remember the summer of this one of the the examples that stuck out to me is the summer of 2014 when everything was heating up in Gaza. And President Obama was, you know, felt like we needed to send a message to the Israelis that things were going too far. Um, And we had stuck with the same language forever and ever. And I remember talking to you and others at the White House about how we can send a message. We tweaked our language slightly. I was going to be asked about it. The White House may not have been. And we tweaked our language slightly. And it sent a strong message. And, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu called Kerry and, you know, his head exploded or whatever. But uh, we used it like that. And that is very different from how it works in the more political arenas uh, here. And the other role is, of course, traveling with the Secretary of State. Yeah. I mean, everybody, there's so much that's changed under the current administration. The words were so carefully selected. And people knew when we said something that it represented kind of the considered view of the government, um, which is clearly not the case now when, you know, people are saying all kinds of crazy stuff out of the administration. But that if you shifted from expressing concern to expressing like deep concern, like, you know, heads of state are responding and, uh, it, you know, it, it was that impactful. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, traveling with Kerry, who was on the road a fair amount, um, <laughs> to say the yeah. least. Um, so, OK, let, let's get into Ukraine here, where this story really uh, takes off. Ukraine stands on the brink of disaster. After losing the Crimea Peninsula to Russian annexation, it now faces losing control of its eastern regions in a struggle with pro-Russian separatists. And the basic case I make in the book is that you can't understand what happened in our election unless you understand Ukraine for kind of two reasons. One is that for Putin, when the Ukrainian government fell, Yanukovych, the president of Ukraine, fell, he kind of saw that as the U.S. was responsible, all bets are off. You came into Russia because he saw Ukraine as kind of part of Russia. And so he was going to hit back. And then secondly, they developed this capability, which we'll talk about, to create fake news, to lie, to use all their television stations, to basically wage information war. So these two strands that come together in our election, Russia becoming much more hostile to us and their information uh, campaign capability kind of start there. And you end up at the center of all that. So to set it up, I mean, the 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 Ukrainian government's there. And this is kind of issue that is not front and center for us, right? Mm -hmm. We're not coming to work every day thinking about Ukraine. And these protests start to build in the Maidan, the central square in, in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. Because essentially, Viktor Yanukovych, client of Paul Manafort, <laughs> client of uh, Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. Um, it all comes together. It all comes, it comes together. Full yeah, uh, you'll see where we're going with this. But <laughs> he's so corrupt. I mean, it, it was partially for democracy, but it was also that he was just, you know, it turns out he had like golden toilets and like, you know, 100 cars or something that people were fed up. Golden and, toilets, my favorite. That was my favorite <laughs> detail. And so they're just, they're these protests building and building. Um, Yanukovych, and his security goons kind of fire into the crowds at times. We're ex- urging him to show restraint. Um, 
Then we, the United States, tries to basically broker some deal with Europe and Russia where there's an election. Yanukovych stays in power, but there's going to be an early election. But then Yanukovych kind of gets skittish and just flees the country and goes to Russia. And then, and then this, so this is basically the arc of what happened. I guess my question for you is like, when this started to build up, how did you see this relative to all the other things that we were dealing with in the world? In other words, you know, how big of a deal was Ukraine in your life? How much of this was taken up your briefings in your days in that time when the protests built and Yanukovych fled and before, you know, Crimea and the rest of it? In the beginning, not a lot. But as you just uh, told the story of, obviously, it grew over time until it became a big part of the briefing and a big part of the portfolio of what the State Department was focused on. And, you know, it was an example where every day Jay Carney was not going to be asked about Ukraine. Some days he was, of course. But primarily, the message on how unacceptable we thought everything was and how screwed up it was, was coming from the State Department. And uh, I think, you know, we used it in that regard as a sending a message to the Russians, of course, maybe thinking it would be more effective than, of course, it was. Um, But it was kind of an early warning sign. Not early. I mean, there were many things that happened before it. But for people who weren't really paying attention to the history of everything in the 90s of the Russians' willingness to just lie, completely lie uh, and put all of their resources behind it. And, and, you know, because we're saying things like. The Ukrainian people have to decide and there should be an election and they, they, they should be free to choose whatever relationship they want with Europe because Russia was objecting to them coming into some agreement with the European Union on a trade deal. And the Russians just start lying and saying, you overthrew the government in Kiev. Uh, this is all a plot uh, engineered by the United States and the West. I mean, what what was your initial sense of of those Russian lies? Like, how would it would it come to you from, like, the Russians in the briefing room or, like, uh, just the, the, the way in which you saw news covered? It would come from, I mean, as you referenced, the Russians, the Chinese, I mean, a number of mm-hmm. governments yeah. like that had, had representatives that posed as media, right, from, yeah. from outlets from those countries. And they, of course, would come and do dramatic things where they'd wave newspapers and say, <laughs> Look at all the Ukrainians who are, uh, you know, under the the guise of the United States or look at all the false falsehoods that are being spewed from here. So we saw it in that regard come up. But some of it starts to trickle into coverage domestically because not necessarily at the State Department, but just at the because of the pure number of outlets and online outlets. And some of them are legit. Some are not. People start repeating things that are being reported in RT and uh, some of these Russian outlets that are run by the government, funded by the government, and are essentially propaganda tools. I don't have any uh, reasons not to believe that the Americans are running the show in a very close way. It's not unlike the he said, she said coverage here, where I recall sometimes where I'd be doing some interview briefing and it'd be, well, the Russians say that you're behind this and and you're saying, no, we're not. But you're inherently... Their, their claims are being taken seriously and are impacting the coverage, right? Because we're having to defend the fact that we didn't overthrow the government of Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I think, you know, at that time, I'm sure we knew, but it, it felt like every day we were saying, it's not true. That's not yeah. true. And we looked sort of, you know, a little bit like desperate children yeah. when uh, in reality, yeah. right? Because we stayed within the lines. We followed the traditional rules of 
communicating dip- on diplomatic yeah. issues. And they threw out the rule book and didn't play by any of those rules. Yeah. So we lost in that regard. Yeah. No, it's like uh, the fa- there was a story about like an old Texas politician who once in a campaign wanted to charge his opponent with sleeping with his farm animals. <laughs> and when his advisor says, well, but that's crazy. Like we don't he didn't do that. He said, yeah, well, make the bastard deny it. Yeah. You know, and if you're denying all these things all the time, like you look like you're on defense. Like, oh, we didn't overthrow the government, right. uh, you know. And, and so then, um, sorry for that image, uh, no. everybody. Um, <laughs> so then um, things go off the rails. The Russians move into Crimea, and we should say they deny they're doing it even while they're doing it, right? right. So they're sending Russians in. They're not necessarily in uniforms, they're raising Russian flags over the parliament. Not and telling anyone where the young men who are going in there are what yes. they're doing. People are wondering where their kids are. Yeah, Russian soldiers are being deployed and they're not telling them where. Um, and literally anybody can see this happening on television right. and they're still denying it, right? So I remember feeling like this was a bit of a new world where they're taking over a piece of a country that everybody can see them doing it and yet they're brazen enough to just say, no, we're not doing that. These are just domestic uprisings by the people of Crimea, you know. And we're saying they're doing it, but we can't really prove it to you. Yeah. But they're doing it, we swear, exactly. Yeah. And, and and so um, – and this begins a pattern, right, where, you know, they then go in eastern Ukraine and they are providing military equipment to, to all these separatists in eastern Ukraine, but they're denying they're doing that. And, you, you know, at this point, I do remember, like, your briefing is becoming overtaken by just declaring that the Russians are doing things that everybody can say, see that they're doing. And yet, you know, there's doubt about it because the Russians are just denying it. Right. Exactly. And now at the same time, the tricky part was that we still were trying to look for a diplomatic path yeah. forward. Right. Now, looking back, maybe that was naive, but you yeah. always have to look for the diplomatic path. And so Kerry and Lavrov were meeting, the foreign minister of Russia, were meeting on a regular basis trying to come to agreements. So we were calling them out, but we weren't we weren't that harsh about it. And the briefing and all of our communications with the press were dominated by yeah. being on defense, not to mention Foreign Minister Lavrov, who's been, you know, in the global theater for decades, is this smooth talking guy who's very comfortable with the press. He lies comfortably. He has nice suits. He probably smells good. I mean, I've never gotten close enough to him to know, but you know what I mean? There's a lot of cologne. He kind of has this suave way about him, (laughs) and he's the big communicator on the Russian side and lying with abandon. Yeah, and the European media is consuming this, it's not just U.S. And, and I remember there are two episodes before we get to what happened to you that, that I, I, I remember kind of showed me that things had changed and, and I, I deal with them in, in my book. But one is, do you remember when Tori Newland's phone call, the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, was on the phone with our ambassador in Kiev? Fuck the EU. Yes. Can say fuck you the EU. can say that. It's a <laughs> podcast. And, yes. And I remember like being at work and someone's like, well, how do we respond to this? And the Russians had had clearly intercepted this phone conversation and then just released the audio on YouTube. That would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the UN help glue it and, you know, fuck the EU. No, exactly. And I think we've got to do something to make it stick together because you can be pretty sure that if it does if it does start to gain altitude, the Russians will be working behind the scenes to try to torpedo it. I mean, talk about a new world. Like... Everybody expects the Russians to try to intercept our phone conversations. Yeah. They don't expect them to put it on, on YouTube. No. 
No, it was like an entire new set of rules. Now, they, of yeah. course, hated Toria and yeah. still do because yeah. – and they She's talked, a hardliner. A she's a hardliner, yeah. exactly. And they uh, are were obsessed, probably still are, about her giving out cookies in the Maidan, right? Yeah. So they were, saw her as – This was the of, evidence that, that we were overthrowing the government is that she gave out cookies. Yes, yeah. that she was the stoker of all of this. Yeah. But, you know, that was a that was a I remember having nothing to say when we were asked about it, because what were we going to say? But it was this eye opening moment where, you know, Tory was still their main interlocutor with the U.S. government. Right. And they may not have liked her, but when they started going dark on all of this and going public about their hatred for her, we knew we were sort of in a. Yeah. And a new era. And they're willing, you know, again, to just do things we haven't seen, like to, to intercept a phone call and release it because it, it, to them, this phone call showed that we were plotting about it Ukraine. Proof. Right. Yeah. And Total. she said, fuck the EU. So it was going to cause problems with the, the European EU. Union. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, they live by a different set of rules, which was an advantage. Yeah. But they're also quite good at this. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that, you know, because then the other incident was the MH17, the plane people may recall that took off from the Netherlands, civilian plane with a couple hundred people on board was shot down over Ukraine. Clearly it was shot down over area controlled by Russia. But once again, they just start putting out lies. Uh, no, it was shut down by the Ukrainians. They start creating fake news. You suddenly were seeing not just their television stations, but, you know, Internet stories with all these different theories. And it was like dealing with someone who's not playing by the rule book. Suddenly they can just create their own narrative and send it out into the world. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I think reporters uh, internationally here in the United States are used to people telling the truth or not yeah. sharing the information, right? Yeah. And or finding out the information themselves. And so when you experience a foreign government that is so on the international scene now, the biggest story or one of the bigger stories are lying with abandon. Yeah. I don't think they knew what to do. Now, in many ways, it was a preparation for the yeah, current yeah, administration. And yeah. yeah, and if you look at what Trump is doing and Kellyanne Conway's talk about yeah. alternative facts. In many ways, it's the Russian playbook, right? Yeah. But but at the time, because people, a lot of people didn't have a background knowing Russians' history on propaganda or how they used RT. Yeah, it was sufi- reporters who'd been covering foreign policy knew and knew what to look out for, but a lot didn't. It, yeah. not that it was their fault. It was just new. And and, and the other piece of this is that. Um, I remember you and I being in a lot of meetings where we were desperately trying to get the hard evidence to rebut the Russian claims, right? Visually. Visually. So we yeah. literally have – the, the, you know, we're playing by the rules in every way, you know, including you know, if a plane is shot down, we don't go out and say we know who did it even if we might you know, have a theory because we have to wait for the investigation run right. course or some things we have by intelligence. But I remember having these absurd meetings where there are literally overhead pictures that we had of – Russian trucks just like streaming across the Ukrainian border with military equipment. And it looks kind of like Google Earth. You yeah. Know? But just to declassify one image would take like two days of meeting so you could stand up and, and show right. this image where the Russians are just making stuff up. And right. We can't compete with that. Fabricating everything. It was we were had like a nail file and they had huge machetes. I mean, it was yeah. just not a fair fight. Yeah. Um, and they knew how to do it in a better way and use, as we know now, all of the levers at their disposal that we really didn't. Yeah. I mean, they've got television stations and RT that re- reach hundreds of millions of people. They're creating thousands of social media bots to just create these fake news stories. They're lying. Now, the turn here is 
the, <laughs> the information campaign against you, which, I mean, I chuckle, but it's actually not funny. It's very disconcerting. It's funny now. It's funny now. It was exactly. not funny then. <laughs> what, how did this happen? How did you become aware of this? Like, who told you about this, you know? You know, I remember being in a van in some, I don't remember which European country, and stopping at a European Wawa, I don't know, a gas station. Yeah. And, and this be- is like 2014. This is 2014. Yeah. I was on a trip, and I remember there was, I think it was an ABC.com piece that posted about Russians going after me. Yeah. Um, and it sort of uh, was the moment, for whatever reason, that it hit home. And what they did, their goal was to discredit me as a spokesperson, yeah. that what I said wasn't truthful. Because I happened to be the person speaking most frequently on behalf of the government, yeah. just by the nature of the State Department briefing about Ukraine. And they, there was an evening... Um, show dedicated to me on RT. There were countless news stories and um, social media memes, including one you talk about in your book where my head is put on the body of a model. Yeah. I'm Ben Rhodes, and we will be back with more of my conversation with the former State Department spokeswoman Jen Psaki after this break. As usual, your stomach and the rest of your life are at war. You need to eat, but you can't stop what you're doing to deal with it. And the only fast things that deliver are not what you want. The horror. Introducing Postmates, the app that adds a delivery option to your favorite restaurants. Imagine anything you want to eat delivered. You don't have to drive, park, or even talk on the phone to order. Just download the app and order 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Postmates will bring you what you want within the hour. You can even see where your food is and track your driver on your phone. It's that easy. You forgot to get eggs and milk? No problem. Are you craving a tasty burger? Check. Are you looking for the perfect bottle of red wine or a summer beer? Maybe a rosé? Order up. Postmates is your new long-term munchies booty call. And we are sticking with that. For a limited time, Postmates is giving you $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. $100. To start your free deliveries, download the app today and use code CROOKEDCONVOS, C-O-N-V-O-S, CROOKEDCONVOS. That's the code, CROOKEDCONVOS, for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. So save the hassle, get the food you love fast at Postmates with code CROOKEDCONVOS. So uh, just as we pivot into the election... um, our election. You know, one of the interesting things to think about here is that there are different components of an information campaign. Um, and for instance, I dealt more in the American context with what you're describing, which is, you know, kind of this multi-year effort to make me out to be a liar or a, you know, a bad guy or you know, Benghazi or Iran or whatever it was. Anti-Semitic. <laughs> or, or pro. I'm either a Jewish conspiracy or an anti-Semite or what have you. But it is connected to a broader point where, you know, people have aims. They want to accomplish an objective. And so, therefore, they create a whole bunch of information to validate their views, whether or not those are true or not. They're willing to make stuff up. Then they have to discredit the people who will be on the opposite side of that. And so the Russians are gradually, you know, pressing all these uh, lines of effort. Uh, And to me, I remember... You came to the White House to be communications director those last couple of years, and we were setting up mainly in the NSC this effort to try to push back against Russian interference in Europe, right? Because mm-hmm. that's what we're thinking about. We're right. thinking about 
like they're spreading disinformation about American foreign policy in Europe. They're spreading disinformation about Ukraine in Europe. Um, they're beginning to meddle in European politics. Um, and what ended up happening, of course, is this capability we saw them develop in Ukraine, you know, social media bots making fake news stories, lying about things, uh, amplified by their television networks like RT, hacking material and releasing it. Like, that's exactly the playbook that they bring in our election. And I guess... The, but we didn't think about it that way at the time. Well, that's... which right. Yeah. And so I was going to begin by just saying, like, when do you first, like, remember... I mean, my recollection is essentially Russia's always hacking us, right? Right. So the, people always ask me, like, Ben, would you remember when you learned that they hacked the DNC? It's like they've hacked almost every election. Yeah, I actually don't because they, they, they hack stuff to, to collect the information. Right. They usually release it, right? So to me, it, like, yeah, I might have learned that they hacked the DNC, but I would have always expected them to hack the DNC. I wouldn't expect them to release those emails. Right. Just like they hacked the U.S. government, and mm-hmm. but did not release those emails until the, the Toria type stuff. Um, so to me, it wasn't until they released the DNC emails that I was like, "Oh, something is going on here." Right. Like, what was your when do you recall about just being made aware of like, okay, something's going on with Russia in our election? You know, I remember. I don't remember when I first became aware. I remember when I started to think, oh, shit, this is really bad or something's bad here. And granted, I knew probably, it turns out, about 10 percent of what was happening um, before the election. But in September, you know, when things started getting um, heating up with the election, they started also – you know, heating up. We were, we were, we had the. There was the statement that was being worked on. We mm-hmm. were trying to work with um, Democratic and Republican leadership on a letter, the sequencing of that. Yeah. But you know, at the time, um, our focus was entirely on one. Everybody thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, including every single soul in the White House. Yeah. Um, but two, we were worried about Trump saying the election was rigged, right? Yeah. And he said that at almost every campaign event. Yeah. And our concern was he was going to get up the day after the election and say that was rigged, you know, and the country would be divided and it would be a huge problem. And so, you know, I remember that concern being first and foremost, not yeah. all of the propaganda. Well, and I remember um, so they, they they hacked the DNC emails, released them, which had a pretty huge impact. Like, yeah. It colored the, that convention like the Bernie supporters were mad at the Hillary people. Yeah, that's emails. true. If Debbie you, Wasserman Schultz had to step down. So it was really the summer, if I look back. Yeah, but, um, but then you and I, and I described this in the book, like I was called into Susan Rice's office in the beginning of September. And I knew something was up because we'd gone to the G20 and met Putin. It was like me and Carrie and mm-hmm. Susan in the meeting with Putin. And we had this kind of very weird bilateral meeting about Ukraine and Syria. And Putin told us that, you know, in Syria, we'd asked John Brennan to climb up, climb up a spruce tree naked without getting a scratch on his ass. You know, like uh, the Russians have a very strange it's way of quite talking. quite a visual. Yeah, I, I always appreciate it. <laughs> Don't repeat visual. it. Um, <laughs> But then, then Obama went one on one with Putin right. to talk about something, and I didn't know what. And then in the press conference, he said, you know, he made this comment about Russia. You know, if they interfere in our election, we can respond. Susan calls me in her office and says, "Hey, there's been this secret meeting taking place for a couple months where senior people have been discussing the fact that Russia is meddling in our election and how we're going to respond. The plan, as you describe, is." 
to get a bipartisan statement from Congress, you know, condemning this, McConnell <laughs> refuses to sign on. Then which the, delayed the whole process. Which delayed it by weeks, like yeah, because we wasted like two weeks in September just briefing Congress on this, and and McConnell has no interest in it. Then the plan shifts to the intelligence community is going to put out a statement about the Russian meddling, right. which you and I are not even allowed to edit. You right. know, the idea is that this has got to be totally divorced from right. any politics, just intelligence community thing. So you and I have to start working up the Q&A of like, what do we say when this comes out? And I remember you and I were putting in questions like that we had, like, why are we just learning about this? <laughs> you know, and uh, um, and so the community was kind of, deliberately kept out of politics and you and I as communications people, the, there was a worry that we'd be seen as political. I, I guess w- when you're learning all this, so for the, you know, when you're hearing about the statement that's going to go out and did you think about what happened to you? Like, did you, did you think about, um, did you connect this to your personal experience with the Russians coming after you? Um, like, how did you, like, how did this register with you? Not until after the election okay. when we learned when I learned more about the social media aspect of yeah. this. Um, and, you know, I think in, in the period of time, you know, as you said, we were really kept out of any of the details and the reasoning. Um, and at the time, I was pretty pissed yeah. Um, yeah, I was pretty when pissed I learned too. more about what had happened um, because. Um, you know, it turned out there was a massive political influence campaign going on yeah. and decisions were being made without any political or communications people involved. Yeah. Now, obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, and I've taken some deep breaths since, yeah. you know, two yeah. years ago. But, you know, I think in the period of time, it was just a methodical, OK, this is what we need to do. We need to make sure we protect ourselves for when Hillary Clinton is elected yeah. uh, and the country elects That's the her. That's scenario that people are afraid of. Right. And uh, Trump comes out and says something insane, like the election was rigged and you can't believe it. Yeah. And that was the real focus. And I was so used to, even though I'd worked at the State Department, probably because I had, being respectful of the lines drawn by the intelligence community and yeah. by um, DOJ and people within the government who said, this is the information we can give you now. Yeah. Right. And that's exactly what happened in this scenario. We didn't know what we didn't know because yeah. we only knew what we were told. Yeah. And at the time before the election, what I knew, I think what you knew, maybe a little bit more, was that, you know, they had hacked. Uh, we were putting out the statement. Uh, we still thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. And we really, I at least at the time, didn't really understand, I think most people didn't, yeah. the impact of the propaganda and influence campaign, which yeah. looking back, it's like we were also freaked out about John Podesta's emails, right? Yeah, but John Podesta's yeah. emails, I mean, I'm I'm sure that was not enjoyable to him, but that was hardly the problem. That was a distraction yeah. from everything else everything happening. Else I mean, because basically, I'm, well, first of all, we learned later the Russians did in America what they did around Ukraine, which is in addition to this hacking and releasing emails, they were creating huge volumes of fake news stories to denigrate Hillary Clinton, help Donald Trump. They reached tens of millions of Americans. Yeah. Right? Um, now, our government deals with this as like a, I think it's important for people to understand kind of the two problems here. One is they we have no capability to stop that anyway. Right. So it's an open Internet the intelligence community doesn't spend a lot of time analyzing open news sources that, you know, uh, say X, Y, and Z about Hillary Clinton. They're trying to find the secret activity. 
And the secret activity was the hacking. Mm -hmm. And so the working group of people put together was like a bunch of nerds who worked on cybersecurity, which are important. I'm glad those nerds were there. But like it was those nerds and, and cabinet people and Russia people, but not political and communications people who might have actually had an antenna for like an influence campaign involving huge volumes of fake news about Hillary Clinton's corruption. And, yeah. You know, uh, and, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, you know, we were also, of course, worried about the the integrity of the electoral yeah. system. Like they're, if oh, they're yeah, going yeah. to break into right, system. hack into the election, literally hack into it and change votes. Right. So that was a big concern what Jay Johnson was doing. But, you know, looking back, it's, you know, you always th- I always yeah. I've thought as I've thought about it, it's like. Well, what if we got up and said to the American public, there's fake information out there yeah. that's not real about yeah. this election? And what we know now that I don't think we didn't know then was that, yes, there was ads that were purchased, but yeah. that was a small portion of it. As you said, a huge chunk of it were these news stories, essentially, yeah. that were fake information that were being peddled on the Internet and were driving a narrative that was bad for Hillary Clinton. Um, and and what – and you know – and so people understand how it works is essentially, you know, because of the way your Facebook feed works, for instance, you get news stories that kind of people that the algorithm thinks you want to read. So if you're reading some other stories about Hillary Clinton being terrible, like Breitbart stories, you'll get more. You're going to get some more. And the Russians are just creating more. So they're just creating volume around this stuff. Um, and and in that way, uh, you know, just amplifying negative negative uh, storylines about Hillary. You know, Obama, and people didn't yeah. know fake accounts. They still don't, right? They still don't know. You, they you don't, don't know, know where it originates They don't know fake accounts. From. You don't know where information is coming from. You don't know if something is retweeted, yeah. if it's a bot or not. You know yeah. there's lots of bots because yeah. Twitter said that, but you don't know if it's a bot that's tweeting it. So, well, and I always thought that, like on this collusion question, one of the things, it, it could be as straightforward as if the Russians have hundreds of accounts that are just creating fake news stories, if the Trump campaign just had those accounts and could then take those and retweet them and get them into Breitbart and Drudge, like that alone would be collusion. In other words, this all could have taken place virtually where uh, essentially the Russian content is being you know, disseminated ex- to the right places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan by Trump people. If right. They know which Russians to look for. You know? Right. Exactly. Yeah. It is. It is not collusion. Is not Russians gathering in Ohio and Wisconsin and convincing people to vote yeah. for Trump. Yeah. It is this propaganda online campaign that yeah. they may have worked together on. Um, that was you know generated by all of these bots and these these machines that yeah. were pushing people to think and, and even vote a certain way. And, and, you know, I remember this struck me. We met with the German government around the election and Merkel's spokesperson told me that they would have issues where like Merkel's big vulnerability was that she let in all these Syrian refugees mm-hmm. and that was unpopular. And there'd be a story about Syrian refugee raped a German woman. Right. And it would cause a huge consternation. There'd be protests. It'd usually be somewhere where there's an election coming up. And after a few days of controversy, they'd figure out that the event never happened. Mm-hmm. And then they figure out that the first news story about the event came from some server not in Germany. And basically, the Russians were just firing this stuff into their uh, internet and news media ecosystem. And I'm like, well, this how often could this have happened here? Mm-hmm. You know. Um, but as you say, uh, the focus is on the cyber piece. The focus is on just the hacking and releasing of emails. 
And, you know, candidly, like people thought Hillary was going to win. I remember the last meetings we had before the election were about after the election, Trump was going to stay was rigged because of this. Right. Even with like the very tentative statements we made. And we were kind of coming up with lists of Republican validators to say that this really did happen. Right. Know? Yeah. To, to say that this was a just election, this was yeah. a fair election. Exactly. That's where all of our eggs, all of our eggs were in that basket. We're in that basket. And, you know, I to be fair, I, you know, I remember the Obama view on this. I remember saying to him, like, hey, you know, could you have said more, even at the time, could you be saying more about this fake news? And, and his belief was the type of person who's consuming that is not going to listen to him anyway, right? So you can agree or disagree, but basically, if you're the kind of person reading a story about Hillary Clinton, you know, being responsible for some awful deed, you probably don't think highly of Obama. I do think it's an open question is like, we just didn't give the full context. We gave the, the hacking and not the information. Word, right. People. Know? That's I think that's a fair point that, yeah. you know, it's not as if the people who were um, going to be standing up with white supremacists were going to look to Barack Obama yeah. as to what <laughs> yeah. he had to say about the arbiter. Right. As the arbiter of fake news. Yeah, yeah. That's true. But, you know. We didn't even people didn't even know that there was fake information out there, that information yeah. was being generated by um, a Russian actor, a foreign adversary by machines. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to know if that would have had any impact um, at the time. I mean, I'm also a believer that there are other factors in the election that yeah. we don't talk about. We don't lean on. We don't have to obviously get into now related to the you know mood of the country. But. You know, looking back, it does – you have to wonder yeah. um, about um, whether we had worked more closely with the technology companies yeah. to do more earlier. We probably wouldn't have been able to do it before the election. Would it have had an impact? Probably not. But those are the things you sort of think about, right, as yeah. you're reflecting back on your time in government. Yeah. If you were to guess, where would you say your brain stacked up against other people your age? Do you think your memory or attention is above average? Haven't you wondered that? Something you talk about with people? Well, use Lumosity and find out. Lumosity is the world's most popular brain training program. Even though you can't see the results in a mirror or on a bathroom scale on your waistline, if you want to keep your brain fit, you've got to treat it like a muscle. You gotta work it out. Take it out for a spin. Sign up for Lumosity and take the free 10-minute fit test to get your baseline scores on three games and see how you stack up against others your age. Then your training begins. With Lumosity Premium, they will even design a personalized training program from their 60-plus cognitive games and activities to challenge your key abilities like memory, speed, and problem solving. With every game, Lumosity keeps track of your progress and shows you how you compare worldwide. Don't you want to know how you stack up? Aren't you tired of going through life not knowing how you stack up? We'll find out right now. Go to Lumosity.com slash Crooked Convos. That's Lumosity.com slash Crooked Convos, C-O-N-V-O-S, to sign up for the free fit test plus a 30% discount off Lumosity Premium. 
spelled L-U-M-O-S-I-T-Y, lumosity.com, slash Crooked Convos to take your free fit test and get 30% off Lumosity Premium. Lumosity.com slash Crooked Convos to change your entire life. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And I remember in the transition after the election, Obama orders this review. We're picking up all the bits and pieces of information about Russian meddling. And the picture just becomes more and more alarming. And the scale of this information war becomes more and more alarming. Like, I remember coming to your office one day and saying, like, holy shit, like, this is much worse than anybody knows. You know? Yeah. Um, it was kind of like a pretty awful moment. Yeah. Um, I-, I remember that, too. And, yeah. um, you know, that was definitely the period of time where I was really pissed. And yeah. you were, yeah. too. And. Uh, was it because we could have magically done anything? Yeah, yeah. No, but but you know, I think it was this feeling of um, powerlessness, um, not by your own own choosing. And 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 you know, you like, and you don't have to necessarily agree with me here, because uh, but like you as someone who'd been on the receiving end of a Russian disinformation campaign in 2014, probably would have been a more important like voice in the room and trying to figure out how to respond to Russian meddling than like, you know, just about anybody else. Because, <laughs> cause you you know, you, you saw the tactics, which were social media, right. volume, like, you know, sensationalism, all the things that they brought to bear against Hillary, that's what they'd done to you. And to discredit, yeah. discredit Hillary. And now yeah. she's obviously a much bigger figure of fish than I am. But, yeah. um, but exactly. There were a yeah. lot of the same tactics being used. Um, and this sort of gaslighting of the public that yeah. um, I experienced, Mike McFall experienced, yeah. um, Hillary Clinton experienced actually years before. Um, yeah. So it was it were it was tactics looking back that we had seen before and in, in varying degrees. And I should say the one thing we didn't know, even when we walked out the door, because people ask is this FBI investigation of the Trump people. Right. They just don't brief White House back at when government actually <laughs> Back in the, norms, the old yeah. days of the separation uh, of powers, uh, yeah. yes. They don't brief the White House <laughs> on investigations of Americans. Um, now, Comey decided to brief all of America about the non-investigation <laughs> right. of Hillary Clinton, but that aside. Um, and so I was already alarmed when I walked out the door. We had some vague sense that there was some weird context with the Russians, in part because, like, Michael Flynn was meeting the, this mm-hmm. Russian ambassador. But... If you had told me on January 20th that, yeah, not only the context, but like Don Jr. was taking meetings at Trump Tower with Russian agents. No. I mean, my head would have fallen off my body. Mine too. Um, No, we had no idea, as you said, about any of that or any of these connections. So much has come out. And it's so much worse. I mean, like, you know, Trump keeps saying it's a witch hunt. It's so much worse than anybody could have imagined. Could have thought. I mean, Um, even in the days after the election or sorry, days after the inauguration when people were angry, people felt like this wasn't a valid election. We had no idea of actually the truth that keeps trickling out. Yeah, and so I guess it it leads me to to kind of two, you know, kind of broad questions, you know. So you've dealt with, you've seen American politics kind of deteriorate as, 
you know, we now have a president who just habitually lies. We have kind of a propaganda network for him and Fox. You have these denigration campaigns being run constantly against any of their mm-hmm. opponents. You have alternative facts, fake news, whatever you want to call it. Um, so you see that. And then you also have the experience of seeing Russia creating this information capability. Are you worried that it works? That, like, you know, it, it succeeded in our election. It succeeded for Trump. Trump is kind of able to shape, you know, I always say the media, they think they're being tough on Trump, but they're actually not because they're they're playing on his terms. They're reporting on his every tweet. They're, you know, he's driving the conversation. Like, how do you fix that? It feels um, helpless sometimes. I mean, it feels like it's not possible to fix it. Um, I don't believe that's the case. I think we're in a period of time you know, a more innocent version is probably when uh, robocalls started or yeah, emails yeah. started and people yeah, thought it yeah. was the person emailing them and they had to educate themselves that it's actually not. Yeah, I mean, granted, my dad still replies to Barack Obama's emails, <laughs> yeah. but that's a separate story. Um, hey. <laughs> and, you know, in this case, there's a lot of things that need to happen. And I think I'm an optimist. I can't believe that there's nothing we can do. You know, Facebook and Twitter need to do more. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact is they've done some things. I don't think they were this this evil empire that knew about all of this, obviously, leading up to the election. But, you know, the fact that we don't know if a somebody tweeting is a, is a machine or not, the yeah. fact that we don't, you know, fake accounts are being taken down, but we don't know which accounts are fake. There's yeah. still false information and fake news that's being moved around Facebook. People can't know for themselves. We need some of these companies to help us take steps. And, you know, I think some of that might help. But really, there needs to be an education of the public. Um, And I don't know how we do that, but it's probably one of the most important, you know, endeavors that elected officials and people who support them can take on at this point in time. Yeah. And how does it um, if you're dealing with just the Russia question narrowly, like what? should be happening between now and the 2020 election when they're likely to do this again? Like, how do you get ready for... I mean, Trump is obviously not going to do anything to stop it. Yeah. Um, Well, as you know, they've done nothing. So nowhere to go but up. Look, I think there's more that... Congress can obviously do and Republicans, Congress need to put their big boy pants on and start to take some steps to protect ourselves better. Obviously, they haven't done that. Um, There are people within the administration from some of the in the national security community to the degree they can. They need to start taking steps. I mean, some of it, yes, you wait for the president to tell you to do things, but you know, sometimes yeah. you have to take steps to prepare yourself and prepare, uh, you know, on behalf of the government and behalf of the American people. They yeah. could be doing more. But I feel like I don't know if you agree. I mean, there's a real risk this could happen again. No, I think it's quite likely it happens again. And, you know, the only way it's kind of worked is in Europe, everybody kind of got on the same page. So in like the French and German elections, the the government and the major media companies and they all kind of got together and warned the public. Yeah. And the media companies, believe this or not, like they actually didn't report on any of the hack stuff in the Macron election. Right. Even the the, the media outlets hustled them. It's hard to imagine that happening in the United right. States. So, so they kind of unified as a country. Whereas here, the Russians and frankly Trump have found this kind of underbelly. The internet is so open here that it's hard to stop, like your Facebook feed from being taken over, your Twitter feed from being taken over by bots. The politics is so polarized 
that it's hard to distinguish the crazy Russian disinformation article from the crazy Breitbart disinformation right. article. And so th- this is all happening kind of in the the soft spots of our you know political culture and society, you know, and and uh, I, I there's no substitute. For, I mean, the starting point has to be some degree of public education. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it. And probably people who were younger than you and I, even though we're still young and yes. sprightly, you know, who are in their 20s, younger than that, will have a better understanding of how information moves than even people our age did, right? Yeah, yeah. But that leaves a whole lot of people in this country um, susceptible to misinformation campaigns. Yeah. And so, you know, there are things that Congress can do. There are things that the media companies can do, that yeah. the technology companies can do. Um, you know, it's really like a public service type of thing yeah. at this point. And right now we're just on the path to, to history repeating itself. And you know, the truth is, it's not like Putin's a registered Republican, right? So, yeah. I mean, this is not about we love Trump. Trump is the no, it's greatest. No, about embarrassing the United States. Embarrassing the United States. Dividing the United States and our allies. All the things that we see happening. Yeah, um, and there's a lot of ways it could go down. Yeah. And, you know, it could go down where the Republicans are screwed over in an election. And maybe yeah. that will make them move. <laughs> maybe then they'll get serious about it. I mean, who the heck knows? But Well, the, just to, to, you know, wrap up on a different, slightly different note. I, mean, they, I remember thinking... There's an absurdity to these jobs. I remember you had a picture in your office. What the Russians gave you a hat? Like oh. uh, Lavrov gave you a a pink like a, hat. A pink hat. Yeah. yeah like so this pink sort of, for it was Moscow pink on the for, Hudson kind of hats. You know? Yeah, exactly. I don't still have it because who knows what was embedded and, in yeah, there? With but devices in it, uh, yeah. but but before I became the poster child for their illegal intervention into Ukraine. Um, Carrie and Lavrov saw each other quite a bit because there was a lot of business we did with Russia. Um, Obviously, they were an important global power, still a very powerful country. And um, Carrie gave them some Idaho potatoes. And very like American political, very American political type of thing to do. And they at kind of our next meeting gave me this pink hat. So there's this funny picture of me. Uh, for Mr. Lavrov and all his suave suit wearing, uh, yeah. Carrie and M- Maria, who is yeah, now the, their spokesperson yeah. and quite a famous person in Russia. For the Kremlin, yeah. Yeah. Um, in this picture, it was before the so, misinformation campaign. And this is kind of an interesting note to end on, but like, what do you, you don't, you saw these Russians a lot, right? Um, I remember, so in our first term, you know, we got along well with Medvedev, and we did a lot with him. Yeah, know, Iran sanctions and WTO and other things. And Lavrov was the foreign minister then. It was weird to me to watch Lavrov go from being the foreign minister who was like gregarious and working with America to being this kind of sinister figure. You know, all these lies on on Syria and then Ukraine and then in our election and like, wh- what is your sense of them as people? Like, as they're attacking you. Obviously, you're taking that understandably personally. Like, did you look at this guy and be like, how can you sell out like this? Or are you just thinking, like, you have no choice. Vladimir Putin tells you what to do. You you do it. Yeah, look, I mean, I think um, Lavrov's a survivor. Yeah, um, and the way and you survive. Right? adapts yeah. himself to whomever his leader is. Um, and I remember when we were in... I think we were in the UK and um, we were for some reason at a soccer field with Lavrov. I don't know why we were there, but yeah. he and Kerry took this walk and Lavrov talked about how hard it was um, and how hard everything was. Yeah. Now, we shouldn't let him off the hook for, you know, him yeah. having a hard time with yeah. 
with um, his role under Putin. Um, there's a human being inside there, but yeah. he's a, a survivor and somebody who was willing to do anything and lie with abandon um, yeah. on behalf of the, the person he worked for. Now, I, I do think that, you know, sometimes we get caught up totally in government to government interactions. And the truth is, as well, you, you well know, I mean, Russia is not just Putin, right? Yeah. There are incredible movements happening among young people in the country. Yeah. The way that they communicate over social media is much more sophisticated than ever, anything we do here. And I don't just mean in the hacking sense. Yeah. Um, and sometimes remembering that um, yeah. gives you a little bit of solace. But yeah, you know, you just these are cold blooded politicos um, yeah. just on the international scene. I remember the um, the Medvedev people. Medvedev came to the G8. It was then the G8 that had been kicked out yet at Camp David in 2013. And he was already going to be replaced by Putin. This, that, that was done. Right. Putin didn't show up. And so it's him and his people. And they emptied out the vodka at the uh, Camp David bar. <laughs> and, and But you had this sense of like a somber, like they knew what was coming. Like we're just going to hole up and have a bunch of vodka here power through this summit, head back and go back to being, you know, subsidiaries to Putin. Uh, and they're younger, the younger, hipper people who like, you know, in some other world, they'd be like living in London. And yeah, uh, you had a sense that they knew what was coming when Putin came back into office. And uh, the scary thing is how much propaganda works, because I remember the height of the first term when things were going well, like Obama actually did an interview with this guy, Andrei Sitov, uh-huh. who we both know, who's actually a lovely guy yeah. too, right? Um, and it was a very friendly interview for a Russian television station. And around that time, McFaul, a member was our, at the White House, told me you know, Obama was polling at like, I don't know, 60% in Russia, mm-hmm. which was very high for American president. Fast forward to the end of the administration, Obama's polling at like 8%. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they turned him into a villain. Andrei Sitov came to my last briefing and it's just like yelling at me about Ukraine and uh, clearly stuff he's got to know is not true. But mm-hmm. like like Lavrov, he's got to do what he said. And you could just see how much one strongman and Putin could kind of just turn the ship of this country around and, and chiefly through propaganda just change the way people think. And it's, a I think, a real warning for us. You know, people want to know why there's like 40 percent of the country that just believes like Trump could say it's the sky is now green and they just they pull those people and they'd say, yes, the sky's you know, this is what happens in a society when like you just have relentless propaganda and and you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to end up like that. Um, no. I, yeah. No, I mean, it. it's you know, and I think Trump has clearly a lot of admiration for Vladimir Putin. Yeah. But no doubt one of them is the way that he has Controls this kind of yeah. state run information controlled media where you can make up your own narrative. It doesn't have to be based in fact. And even the way that his spokespeople have gone out over the course of the last year and a half is very reminiscent or very similar to how the Russian spokespeople go out and completely lie with abandon and do it in a dramatic fashion and with a little bit of flair. Um, That's exactly how they do it. So, yeah, it's looking, you know, looking at the way they do things, it, it is it is a bit ominous. Um, it is, because I'm sure, like, the people, the human beings who, like, had to go on, like, RT and, like, do some segment about you as, like, some whatever they were calling you that day, some of those human beings are not bad people. No. Just, like, some of the people on, like, Fox and Friends are not bad people. But 
it's a it's a sign of like in systems that become corrupted. Yeah. Everybody gets kind of corrupted. Everybody and, worries yeah. about who's writing their next paycheck. Yeah, I remember the guy who came to our briefing all the time who would dramatically wave yeah. newspapers about, yeah, yeah. about you know, how the United States was invading Ukraine or whatever yeah. the lie of the day was. Um, and when I was about to come to the White House, his question at the briefing was, uh, I was wondering, are you uh, going to be speaking on behalf of the United States in your next job? And at that point, I had a little yeah. more humor about yeah, yeah. Um, being the victim of their propaganda. And I said, why? Is your boss, is your government wondering? Is your boss <laughs> yeah, wondering yeah, yeah. at the briefing? Yeah. Um, right. Um, are you reporting back to them? Um, you know, and you have moments like that. Yeah. But then after the briefing, I, it was my last one. I remember him coming up to me and saying, and I was very pregnant at the time. Yeah. Are you having a girl or a boy? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That's so exciting. I'm thrilled for you. Um, so you see the humanity, but you can't let the humanity cloud um, the very the malintent. Yeah. Um, yeah. For lack of a better a better term. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, maybe the optimistic note is that like if. The systems bring out the humanity in people instead of the uh, shallow careerism and uh, nihilistic propaganda. We'll all be better off. But Jen Psaki, one of my favorite people in the whole world, thank you so much. For, thank you for to this one of my favorite people in the whole yes, world. We is... actually liked each other in the Obama. We world. really did. <laughs> and actually, that's kind of sad. Even to watch. through really dark, horrible days, some pretty dark times. And yeah, you don't always get what you want. And but like the the it was a sense of like kind of almost like a family. Um, it's very weird. And we were there the whole eight years. Um, or you had a brief uh, interview. Foray yeah. out and yeah. back in. Um, it's very weird to watch these people, like, revolving door leaving, you know, backbiting each other in the press, like, sometimes backbiting each other out in the open. Right. doesn't look like a very fun place to no, work. No, it was a totally different. I always tell people it's like... When the Obama world, I could be pissed at my brother and yeah, yell at yeah, him. Yeah, but yeah. if somebody else tried to attack him, yeah, then all bets are then off. Then everybody's yeah, yeah, kind of in yeah, the bunker together, yeah. and uh, you don't get that feeling that you, it's similar in this White House. Yeah, and and when things go particularly bad, that's gonna come out. I think. Yeah, it's um, true. All right, thank you, Jen. Thank you, Ben. That was awesome. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Next week on the show, we'll have a conversation with the former spokesperson for the National Security Council in the White House and my former partner in our negotiations with Cuba uh, and in preparing President Obama's trip to Havana in 2016. We'll discuss what it was like to negotiate with the Cubans and how that trip uh, that President Obama took in 2016 came together. Uh, It should be a lot of fun take you behind the scenes on how you put together not just a presidential trip, but an historic opening uh, to Cuba and the Cuban people. Thanks very much. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.